Book 11, Part 1 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Drew Altschul. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Nazar. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 11, Part 1. While with his songs, Orpheus, the bard of Thrace, allured the trees, the savage animals, and even the insensate rocks to follow him. Siconian matrons, with their raving beasts concealed in skins of forest animals, from the summit of a hill observed him there attuning love-songs to a sounding harp. One of these women, as her tangled hair was tossed upon the light breeze, shouted, "'See, here is the poet who has scorned our love!' then hurled her spear at the melodious mouth of great Apollo's bard. But the spear's point, trailing in flight a garland of fresh leaves, made but a harmless bruise and wounded not. The weapon of another was a stone, which in the very air was overpowered by the true harmony of his voice and lyre, and so disabled lay before his feet as asking pardon for that vain attempt. The madness of such warfare then increased. All moderation was entirely lost and a wild fury overcomes the right. Although their weapons would have lost all force, subjected to the power of Orpheus's harp, the clamorous discord of their boxwood pipes, the blaring of their horns, their tambourines and clapping hands and bacchanalian yells, with hideous discords drowned his voice and harp. At last the stones that heard his song no more fell crimson with the Thracian poet's blood. Before his life was taken, the maenads turned their threatening hands upon the many birds, which still were charmed by Orpheus as he sang, the serpents and the company of beasts, fabulous audience of the worship bard. And then they turned on him their blood-stained hands, and flocked together swiftly as wild birds, which by some chance may see the bird of night beneath the sun, and as the savage dogs rush on the doomed stag, loosed some bright forenoon on blood sand of the amphitheatre they rushed against the bard with swift hurled thrice which adorned with emerald leaves had not till then been used for cruelty and some threw clods and others branches torn from trees and others threw flint stones at him and that no lack of weapons might restrain their savage fury then not far from there by chance they found some oxen which turned up the soil with ploughshares and in fields near by were strong-armed peasants who with eager sweat worked for the harvest as they dug hard fields and all those peasants when they saw the troop of frantic women ran away and left their implements of labor strewn upon deserted fields harrows and heavy rakes and their long spades after the savage mob had seized upon those implements and torn to pieces oxen marmed with threatening horns they hastened to destroy the harmless bard devoted orpheus and with impious hate murdered him while his outstretched hands implored their mercy the first and only time his voice had no persuasion o oh, great jupiter through those same lips which had controlled the rock which had overcome ferocious beasts his life breathed forth departed in the air the mournful birds the stricken animals the hard stones and the weeping woods all these that often had followed your inspiring voice bewailed your death while trees dropped their green leaves mourning for you as if they tore their hair 
They say sad rivers swell with their own tears. Naiads and dryads with disheveled hair wore garments of dark color. His torn limbs were scattered in strange places. Hebrus then received his head and harp, and wonderful, while his loved harp was floating down the stream, it mourned for him beyond my power to tell. His tongue, though lifeless, uttered a mournful sound, and mournfully the river's banks replied. Onward borne by the river to the sea, they left their native stream and reached the shore of Lesbos at Methymna. Instantly a furious serpent rose to attack the head of Orpheus, cast up on that foreign sand the hair still wet with spray. Phoebus at last appeared and saved the head from that attack. Before the serpent could inflict a sting, he drove it off and hardened its wide jaws to rigid stone. Meanwhile, the fleeting shade of Orpheus had descended under earth, remembering now those regions that he saw when there before he sought Eurydice through fields frequented by the blessed, and when he found her, enfolded her in eager arms. Then lovingly they wandered side by side, or he would follow when she chose to lead. Or at another time he walked in front, looking back safely at Eurydice. Bacchus would not permit the wickedness of those who slaughtered Orpheus to remain unpunished. Grieving for the loss of his loved bard of sacred rites, at once he bound with twisted roots the feet of every one of those Edonian women who had caused the crime of Orpheus's death. Their toes grew long, he thrust the sharp points in the solid earth, as when a bird entangled in a snare, hid by the cunning fowler, knows too late that it is held, then vainly beats its wings, and fluttering only makes more tight the noose with every struggle. So, each woman fiend whose feet were sinking in the soil when she attempted flight was held by deepening roots, and while she looks down there, her toes and nails and feet should be, she sees wood growing up from them and covering all her graceful legs, full of delirious grief, endeavoring to smite with right hand on her changing thigh, she strikes on solid oak. Her tender breast and shoulders are transformed to rigid oak. You would declare that her extended arms are real branches of a forest tree, and such a thought would be the truth. And not content with this, Bacchus resolved to leave that land, and with a worthier train went to the vineyards of his own Timolus and to Pactolus, though the river was not golden, nor admired for precious sands. His usual throng of satyrs and of bacchanals surrounded him, but not Selenus, who was then detained from him. The Phrygian folk had captured him, as he was staggering faint with palsied age and wine, and after they bound him in garlands they led him to their king, Midas, to whom with the Cecropian Eumolpus, Thracian Orpheus, had shown all the Bacchic rites. When Midas recognized his old-time friend Selenus, who had been so often his companion in the rites of Bacchus, he kept a joyful festival, and with his old comrade, twice five days and nights. Upon the eleventh day, when Lucifer had dimmed the lofty multitude of stars, King Midas and Silenus went from there joyful together to the Lydian lands. There Midas put Silenus carefully under the care of his loved foster-child, young Bacchus. He, with great delight, because he had his foster-father once again, allowed the king to choose his own reward, a welcome offer, but it led to harm. And Midas made this ill-advised reply. 
Cause whatever I shall touch to change at once to yellow gold. Bacchus agreed to his unfortunate request, with grief that Midas chose for harm and not for good. The Berecynthian hero, king of Phrygia, with joy at his misfortune went away, and instantly began to test the worth of Bacchus's word by touching everything. Doubtful himself of his new power, he pulled a twig down from a holm oak, growing on a low-lung branch. The twig was turned to gold. He lifted up a dark stone from the ground, and it turned pale with gold. He touched a clod, and by his potent touch that clod became a mass of shining gold. He plucked some ripe, dry spears of grain, and all that wheat he touched was golden. Then he held an apple, which he gathered from a tree, and you would think that Hesperides had given it. If he but touched a lofty door, at once each door post seemed to glisten. When he washed his hand in liquid streams, the lustrous drops upon his hands might have been those which once astonished Dene. He could not now conceive his large hopes in his grasping mind as he imagined everything of gold. And while he was rejoicing in great wealth, his servant set a table for his meal, with many dainties and with needful bread. But when he touched the gift of Ceres with his right hand, instantly the gift of Ceres stiffened to gold. Or if he tried to bite with hungry teeth a tender bit of meat, the dainty, as his teeth but touched it, shone at once with yellow shreds and flakes of gold. And wine, another gift of Bacchus, when he mixed it in pure water, can be seen in his astonished mouth as liquid gold. Confounded by his strange misfortune, rich and wretched, he was anxious to escape from his unhappy wealth. He hated all he had so lately longed for. Plenty could not lessen hunger, and no remedy relieved his dry, parched throat. The hated gold tormented him no more than he deserved. Lifting his hands and shining arms to heaven, he moaned, O oh, pardon me, Father Linnaeus, I have done wrong, but pity me, I pray, and save me from this curse that looks so fair. How patient are the gods! Bacchus forthwith, because King Midas had confessed his fault, restored him, and annulled the promise given, annulled the favor granted, and he said, That you may not be always cased in gold, which you unhappily desired, depart to the stream that flows by the great town of Sardis, and upward trace its waters that they glide past Lydian heights, until you find their source. Then, where the spring leaps out from mountain rock, plunge head and body in the snowy foam, at once the flood will take away your curse. King Midas did as he was told, and plunged beneath the water at the river's source, and the gold virtue granted by the god as it departed from his body tinged the stream with gold, and even to this hour adjoining fields touched by this ancient vein of gold are hardened where the river flows and colored with the gold that Midas left. Abhorring riches, he inhabited the woods and fields and followed Pan, who dwells always in mountain caves, but still obtuse remained, from which his foolish mind again, by an absurd decision, harmed his life. He followed Pan up to the lofty Mount Timulus, which from its great height looks far across the sea. Steep and erect it stands between great Sardis and the small Hippepa. While Pan was boasting there to the mountain nymphs of his great skill in music, and while he was warbling a gay tune upon the reeds, cemented with soft wax in his conceit, he dared to boast to them how he despised Apollo's music when compared with his. At last, to prove it, he agreed to stand against Apollo in a contest 
which it was agreed should be decided by Timulus as their umpire. This old god sat down on his own mountain, and first eased his ears of many mountain-growing trees. Oak leaves were wreathed upon his azure hair, and acorns from his hollow temples hung. First to the shepherd god, Timulus spoke, My judgment shall be yours with no delay. Pan made some rustic sounds on his rough reeds, delighting Midas with his uncouth notes, for Midas chanced to be there when he played. When Pan had ceased, divine Timulus turned to Phoebus, and the forest likewise turned just as he moved. Apollo's golden locks were richly wreathed with fresh Parnassian laurel. His robe of Tyrian purple swept the ground. His left hand held his lyre, adorned with gems and Indian ivory. His right hand held the plectrum. As an artist he stood there before Timulus, while his skillful thumb touching the strings made charming melody. Delighted with Apollo's artful touch, Timulus ordered Pan to hold his reeds, excelled by beauty of Apollo's lyre. That judgment of the sacred mountain god pleased all those present, all but Midas, who, blaming Timulus, called the award unjust. The Delian god forbids his stupid ears to hold their native human shape, and drawing them out to a hideous length, he fills them with gray hairs and makes them both unsteady, wagging at the lower part, still human, only this one part condemned. Midas had ears of a slow-moving ass. Midas, careful to hide his long ears, wore a purple turban over both, which hid his foul disgrace from laughter. But one day a servant, who was chosen to cut his hair with steel when it was long, saw his disgrace. He did not dare reveal what he had seen, but eager to disclose the secret, dug a shallow hole, and in a low voice told what kind of ears were on his master's head. All this he whispered in the hollow earth he dug, and then buried all he had said by throwing back the loose earth in the hole, so everything was silent when he left. A grove thick-set with quivering reeds began to grow there, and when it matured about twelve months after that the servant left, the grove betrayed its planter. For, moved by a gentle south wind, it repeated all the words which he had whispered and disclosed from earth the secret of his master's ears. His vengeance now complete, Latona's son, born through the liquid air, departed from Timulus, and then rested on the land of Laomedon. This side the narrow sea dividing Phrygia from the land of Thrace. The promontory of Sigium, right and on the left of Reotem, roftily arise, and at that place an ancient altar had been dedicated to great Jove, the god Panomphaeon. And near that place he saw Laomedon, beginning then to build the walls of famous Troy. He was convinced the task exceeded all the power of man, requiring great resource. Together with the trident-bearing father of the deep, he assumed a mortal form, and those two gods agreed to labor for a sum of gold and built the mighty wall. But that false king refused all payment, adding perjury to his false bargaining. Neptune, enraged, said, "'You shall not escape your punishment.' and he drove all his waters high upon the shores of Troy, built there through perfidy. The sad land seemed to see the hard-earned wealth of all its farmers was destroyed and overwhelmed by furious waves. This awful punishment was not enough. The daughter of the king was soon required as food for a sea monster. Hesione was chained to rugged rocks, but Hercules delivered from all harm the royal maid, and justly he demanded of the king, her father, payment of the promised steeds, but that perfidious king refused to keep his promise. 
Hercules, enraged because all payment was denied to him for his great service, captured the twice-perjured walls of conquered Troy, and as a fair reward he gave Telamon, who fought for him, Hesione, love daughter of that king. For Peleus had a god as his bride, and he was prouder of his father-in-law than of his grandsire. Since not he alone was grandson of the great Jove, but he alone was honored with a goddess for a wife. To Thetis, aged Proteus once had said, O goddess of the waves, you shall conceive, and you shall be the mother of a youth who by heroic actions will surpass the deeds of his own father, and your son shall be superior to his father's power. So Jupiter, although the flame of love for Thetis burned his breast, would not embrace the lovely daughter of the sea, and urged his grandson Peleus, son of Aeacus, to wed the green-haired maid without delay. There is a curved bay of Hemonia, where, like an arch, two bending arms project out in the waves, as if to form a harbor, but the water is not deep, although enough to hide a shoal of sand. It is a firm shore which will not retain a foot's impression, nor delay the step. No seaweeds grow in that vicinity. There is a grove of myrtle near that place, thick hung with berries, blended of twin shades. A cave within the middle of that grove is found, and whether it was formed by art or nature is not known, although it seems a work of art. There Thetis often went, quite naked, seated on her dolphin, which was harnessed, Peleus seized her there when she was fast asleep, and after he had tried to win her by entreaties, while she long continued to resist him, he resolved to conquer her by violence, and seized her neck with both arms. She resorted then to her, all her usual art, and often changed, her shape as it was known, so that he failed in his attempt. At first she was a bird, but while she seemed a bird he held her fast, and then she changed herself to a large tree, and Peleus clung with ardor to the tree. Her third disguise was a spotted tigress, which frightened him so that he lost his hold. Then, as he poured wine on the heaving sea, he prayed unto the sea-green gods, and gave them sacrifice of sheep entrails and smoke of frankincense. He ceased not till at last the prophet of Carpathia, as he rose up from a deep wave, said, Hark unto me, O son of Aeacus, you shall have the bride your heart desires, when she at rest lies sleeping in the cool wave. You must bind her while she is unwary, with strong cords and complicated bonds, and never let her art deceive you when she imitates a hundred varied forms, but hold her fast, whatever she may seem, until she shall at length assume the shape she had at first. So Proteus cautioned him, and hid his face beneath the waves as his last words were said. Now Titan was descending, and the pole of his bright chariot as it downward bent illuminated the Hesperian main, and at that time the lovely Nerid, Thetis, departing from her ocean wave, entered the cavern for desired repose. Peleus was waiting there. Immediately, just as he seized upon the virgin's limbs, she changed her shape and persevered until convinced she could not overcome his hold, for her two arms were forced apart. She groaned and said, You could not overcome me in this way, but some divinity has given you the power. Then she appeared as Thetis, and when Peleus saw her now deprived of all deceptions, he embraced her and was father of the great Achilles. 
End of Book 11, Part 1